From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What started as an online English class is now connecting Colorado to Ukraine, sharing the hopes and fears of the people caught in the middle of a war. We have to fight and believe that Ukraine will arise. The world is with us and our motherland will be in safe, I think, I hope, and I believe in the nearest future. Then the pandemic, a supply chain in disarray, and record high gas prices during a global crisis. It's redefining not only how we buy cars, but what we can buy and even repair. I think the days of just taking the car in and hoping for the best uh, might be over, especially if that car is something that, that you need for daily commuting or you know you need on a daily basis. It's that rough out there right now. But we do have ways to make your car more fuel efficient, plus reflections on being a new parent in a pandemic. I'm Vanessa Rivera, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. I knew that it was time, and so as soon as I got my new car, the next day, I went on CPR.org, and a lot of people were asking me, you know, how much money are you gonna make out of it? I was like, actually, I'm not making any money. I'm donating my car to Colorado Public Radio. And it kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you for just listening. And so it was kind of like a paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. Learn how to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. At first, the Zoom call Andy Lennick launched from his Colorado home to Ukraine every week were simple, just a chance to help people he'd met during his Peace Corps service in Ukraine improve their English skills. These days, though, when Lennick logs on, he's Zooming into a war zone whose residents are sharing their fears and hopes for their country. Lennox conducted one of these calls yesterday with three residents of the city where he lived while he was in the Peace Corps. We sat in on that session, and Annie Lennox joins me now. Andy, welcome to the program. Good morning, Nathan. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. So start by setting the scene for us. The city is Truskovets in western Ukraine, which has been less touched by war than other parts of the country so far. What's Truskovets like? So it's um, it's called the City of Healing Waters because there are... Uh, a number of wells there that produce this um, sort of uh, oily tasting water that is very, very healing. And in the, the as, as um, early as the mid 19th century, people from all over Eastern Europe would come there to heal. Uh, the waters, you drink them, you don't bathe in them, and the waters are very good for um, diseases of the liver and the kidney. And so as a result, there are these 17 very large sanatoriums that were built around the city. And people still come there, mostly from Eastern Bloc countries, to, um, to heal and to relax. So it's sort of touristy in, in a sense, um, but really people come for the water. And a city of about 20,000, it has a beautiful little uh, downtown, whatever you'd call it, Central Square, with uh, the various vendors, people come in from the countryside with their handmade uh, Ukrainian goods, and uh, just a, a sort of a jovial atmosphere. Um, and and know, I understand uh, by, by some estimates that the city is almost doubled in size, from about 20,000 to maybe as many as thirty-five to 40,000 people as people fled the violence in other parts of the country. And, and you're right, this is a tourist town, so I'm assuming they have plenty of hotels and things, but that's a, that's a huge jump in people. Yeah, it's it's literally doubled in population, um, mm. and they are well positioned to handle IDPs. I, I want to uh, 
differentiate between refugees and IDPs. An IDP is an internally displaced person. So, uh, so yes, there are not only the, the 17 very large sanatoriums, but a lot of small hotels and um, even bed and breakfasts. And also people just taking uh, IDPs into their homes as well. It's a beautiful place. I've seen pictures online, um, but it must be quite a difference now um, with all the people flooding into the community. You know, from, yes, that is what I hear from my friends. And, um, you know, they're kind of used to a summer touristy season, a lot of people that visit. But now what you're seeing is people with very little luggage, people with this sort of lost look in their eyes, uh, you know, wandering around. So I, I'm imagining that the, that the uh, the atmosphere of the town has changed 180 degrees very, very drastically. Yeah. Now, Truskovets has not come under attack, I want to be clear, uh, from the Russians. And the people who were on your call Monday said they feel relatively safe, And but, but let's emphasize the word relatively. Uh, I want to hear from some of the people on the Zoom with you yesterday. We're going to avoid using their full names to uh, avoid the possibility of putting them at risk. One of the people was a doctor who works at a hospital near his home, and he said so far they've only treated a few minor casualties transferred in from combat zones, but air raid sirens go off almost every night in the city, and that means evacuating all of the patients to the hospital basement. And that happens. Rec- that happened recently when a training base about 100 kilometers away was bombed. Here's the doctor. I was on on night shift that night, and uh, from uh, 3 a.m. like in the, in the night to about 7 a.m., we sat in that basement with our patients. Uh, so it wasn't uh, like a very good experience, but I think it's better to be safe in basement than to be bombed. You went to Truskovitz with the Peace Corps in 2017. What's it like for you to hear stories like that from the city where you once lived? Tears my heart apart. You know, it tears mm. my heart apart. Um, this doctor, I happen to know him. He, he was attending our uh, in-person English clubs, and he was still a medical student. So uh, he's become a good friend, and I uh, stay in touch with him. And, uh, you know, I just think about the, the joy that they all experienced. Everybody there was uh, in a beautiful place, and, it, you know, many people would drink these healing waters. So to, to have their lives turned upside down so much. And I, yesterday, he also spoke about uh, how he is handling this emotionally. And as a doctor, he is trained to separate himself from his patient's pain. Um, so I think, and I, I even asked him, like, is this helping you with uh, enduring this, this collective uh, sorrow uh, and terror? And he said, yeah, I think it probably is. So the Zoom calls are, are almost therapeutic, it seems. Well, you know, they're therapeutic for me because I get to hear that my friends are still alive. Um, they're therapeutic for the participants because they want their stories to get out. So when there are journalists on these calls, they know that they're speaking directly to people who can get the story out, like yourself, Nathan. Um, yeah. So, and, and then they don't have the luxury right now of uh, taking stock of their emotional state. You know, we, we did discuss that a little bit on the Zoom call yesterday, and um, one of the participants um, was saying that even though she's relatively safe, she just feels the pain that is being visited 
upon her nation, about you, upon, upon Ukraine. And so she just burst out crying. She was telling us about mm -hmm. just going into this sort of semi-hysterical state and just crying all day long. And I understand you have a connection that's personal to Ukraine as well, because your parents are from there, right? My parents came after World War II. Uh, I, I still have uh, relatives there on both sides, on my mother's and my father's side. And ironically, when I was stationed in Truskovets, I met second cousins that I never knew existed. So I had three second cousins who all three of them were doctors and all three had come to Truskovets to practice medicine. Yes, my connections run deep. And, and of course, uh, just being in the Peace Corps, um, uh, you know, I made a lot of friends, and especially with the Peace Corps employees, the, the Ukrainian nationals, who were just thrilled to have somebody who spoke Ukrainian come and serve in the Peace Corps. I want to talk a, a little more about the emotional reactions the Ukrainians are feeling as their country is at war. The, the doctor pointed out that this war has really been going on since 2014 in some parts of the country, although at a much lower level than it is now. And and you mentioned, and he mentioned, he's just emotionally numb, disconnected. Did you know the doctor when you were in Ukraine, and, and have you seen a difference in his demeanor? Uh, I did know him. Yeah, he was, uh, he, again, he was a medical student still. And, uh, and in, in the time that I've left, he's graduated and begun practicing medicine. Um, general surgery is his specialty. And yeah, you felt that. And it's Truskovets, because it has all the sanatoriums, um, since 2013, when the Revolution of Dignity started, and then 2014, when Crimea was annexed and, uh, and Russian troops went into two of the oblasts, that oblast is like a state in the far east of the country. So that there's a shooting war that's been going on. And if, if you think about what that does to, again, the collective consciousness of a country, even though it's on the far side of the country, you know, clear across the other side of the country, um, everybody knows somebody who died. Uh, I, when I was there, there was a funeral for, for four young men who had volunteered and were killed in those eastern provinces. And, and the funeral cortages went through four different towns. The streets were lined with votive candles. I mean, it was really, really touching. Um, and then in the city itself of Truskovets, a lot of soldiers came for rehabilitation. And this is what Pavlo was saying. You know, if, you're, if you're treating trauma, you treat it as close to where it started as possible. And there's more long-term rehabilitation that, that is going on in Truskovets. Many of them were, uh, were the soldiers who were, who were uh, injured uh, in that conflict. And then also from that conflict, it generated one and a half million IDPs. So the country had to absorb a lot of people who were driven from their homes in the East. Um, and many people, I mean, everybody knew somebody who had uh, been driven from their home and they needed to be. And it just, yeah, yeah go ahead. It, it, well, it, it just seems to be continuing for them. Of course, uh, of course, the, 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 the war has escalated significantly. Uh, you mentioned earlier a woman who cried during your Zoom call yesterday. She's an activist who has been helping with relief efforts and those internally displaced people coming into the country. I, I want to hear from her. As for me, I try to, to work a lot, to pray a lot, just send everybody my smile. Mm. Sorry, because I start crying. But I still believe that everything will be okay. Mm. We can't give up. The God is with us. The world is with us. And 
our motherland will be in safe, I think, I hope, and I believe in the nearest future. Yeah. We mentioned that folks were fleeing the bombings and going to Treskovets. Many of these people are being invited to stay in private homes. Another woman on Monday's call, a dentist, has taken in two families with kids. I mean, they, they must that must be a lot of people in, in a home, yeah? They don't think twice about it. One of the things that I love about Ukrainian culture is the hospitality. You know, you go to visit a Ukrainian in their home, you will not leave hungry. Um, they just absolutely open their homes. It's second nature to them to do that. You know, it, 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 and they, you know, that, that woman in particular, there, there is aid starting to flow in, uh, in certain areas. And I was asking them, you know, are you, is there money for food or is this food that's being, that's being supplied? Um, and she is not looking for any, she's doing this out of her own pocket, out of her own generosity. Um, so yeah, I'm sure it's difficult, but, um, it's just second nature to extend your home to people in need in Ukraine. I want to go back to the doctor who predicted it will be a long, hard slog to defeat Russia. He said the U.S. should continue its military and humanitarian aid, but also encourage the Ukrainian government to approve its own operations so it can keep the territory it has reclaimed and reclaim what's lost. Essentially, the Ukrainian army needs to be better than the Russian forces, even though they're far outnumbered. Take a listen. It is a war of attrition. So Putin didn't uh, manage to defeat us quickly, but now he uses his brutal tactics, which is grinding, bombing, shellings, and he will continue doing that unless Ukraine like uh, accepts his demands. He won't back down, but we can defeat him if we will continue our effort, but we need to improve certain things to achieve success. I, I really want to hear from you how these conversations went from learning English and you could see that tide of things changing. And now it seems to be just having these people just voice their concerns. How has that been for you seeing that change from let's, let's learn English to, oh my gosh, this is something that could, could seriously impact your friends. So, you know, these relationships, some of them uh, I, I brought home from Ukraine. Some of them are new. Uh, when we decided to um, revive the English club a few months ago, I had reached out and, uh, and it was a very popular thing. Um, I'm sorry, repeat the question again. I'm, my mind's going off in a different direction. Well, how does it feel to watch your friends? Okay, sorry, yeah. sorry. I, I was no, just you know, yeah. when I when I hear when I heard that woman crying, my my heart just I, I almost wanted to cry myself. Um, so probably six weeks ago, when the United States was flooded with uh, our media, our airwaves were flooded with reports of Russian forces massing at the border and Russian forces uh, flowing into the east, and you know you're watching on maps on TV that the country is being surrounded. And, uh, you know, maybe naively, but nobody believed that this would happen, you know, and, and my anxiety uh, level is rising. And I, and I was asking them and, and they were like, you know, they just couldn't imagine that their lives would change to the degree, to the extent that they have. So, so I was asking them, like, are you worried? Are you concerned? And, and at the same time, I didn't want to alarm them or, or change the tenor of these meetings. Um, and then, then you could see that their, 
their anxiety levels were rising. And so we shifted from having sort of mundane everyday conversations to, well, let's talk about what will happen. And, and uh, they all believe that Ukraine is uh, well positioned and has a good army and would never be defeated. Um, and then when finally the forces invaded, it just there was nothing else to talk about. This is what we're going to have yeah. to talk about. Now, now and, Andy, will you continue these conversations with with your friends for as long as you can? Absolutely, every week, you know. And um, and we originally we had people joining from central Ukraine and from even a few from uh, from the northeast where we trained with the Peace Corps in Chernihiv, which is being decimated right now. And uh, you know, the, the, also there's internet issues. Um, internet is intermittent and there's safety issues we had uh, on a conversation of the week before someone who's just a dear dear friend and she was calling from her kitchen uh the lights were out you know she had a candle and this is a woman who was one of the most upbeat optimistic funny people that i've ever met We, we she became a dear friend and and i'm watching and listening to her her life completely changed and and she's agonizing over whether she should um, emigrate, whether she should flee because her husband um, is is active in government and uh, and she's about a hundred kilometers outside of Kiev. And then during the call, I gave her a telephone call afterwards and she said while she was on the Zoom call, a missile had struck the fuel depot in her town and she was looking out the window at this massive blaze. You know, so yes, I will absolutely continue this. Um, it was, I decided to, a few weeks ago, to invite some select journalists so they could hear directly. Um, that turned out to be a pretty good decision uh, for, for everybody involved. The, the people, the, the journalists who listen in on these calls are pretty amazed. You know, they're hearing it firsthand and um, uh, how life has changed. And then again, my friends, um, know that they have an outlet not only to express their feelings and their emotions as we've heard today uh, but also to get the truth out that's that's what they worry about you know is the world aware of what's going on the extent of the horror the extent of the psychological terrorism that is taking place Andy, I really appreciate you being with us. And of course, give our our best of luck to to all of your friends on those calls for us. All right. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks so much for covering this. It's a story that has to get out. Andy Lenick lives in Broomfield. He directed a clean energy advocacy group before his retirement. He served in the Peace Corps in Ukraine in 2017 and 2018. Just ahead, the war in Ukraine is impacting the auto industry here in Colorado, and not just by increasing the cost of fuel. Stick with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. We are all broken. You may have heard me say that many times over the past couple of years, but it's true. We're all broken in our own ways and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, well, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And it's why we're coming back for a third season. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Back From Broken, with support from Lift the Label. 
two years of the pandemic, a supply chain in disarray, inflation in the U.S., and record high gas prices as the global crisis continues to unfold in Ukraine. All of that means buying a car continues to be complicated these days. Automotive journalists Roman Micah and Nathan Adlin are here with TFL Cars, based in Boulder. Roman, Nathan, welcome back to the program. Happy to be here. Pleasure to be here. Roman, let's start with you. The last time we all spoke, you said that a lot of dealers had a very few cars on their lots. Is that still a thing? Yeah, unfortunately, it's gotten worse instead of better. You know, when we spoke last time, I kind of felt like we were seeing the uh, dark at the beginning of the tunnel. And maybe um, we're not even there yet with, you know, recent world events, obviously, supply chain, chip shortages. Most people I'm talking to in the automotive industry don't see 2022 being any better. In fact, I hate to say it, but they think it's going to be worse. I was just, you know, talking to some of my sources and many of the auto manufacturers are cutting their predictions, including Toyota, on how much they're going to be building. I think Toyota said they were expecting to build like 11 million vehicles, units in our speak. Uh, Now they've cut that down by about 20%. uh, And that's happening industry-wide. In Europe, many of the European manufacturers have had to shut down production because obviously the war is affecting supply chains. So uh, I I wish there was better news, but the situation is going to get worse, I think, before it gets better. And to add to that, you know, in terms of local manufacturing, we are being affected here in the United States as well by current world events as such you're going to see certain components that might be omitted from vehicles in order just to get them out the door. And currently we're seeing that happen with some vehicles that may not have certain controls and they're sold as such. I mean, they're, they're not hiding the fact, but just to get you know volume out the door, this is happening. And because of that, m- many consumers are going to lose out a little bit. So does that mean like a, a top of the line stereo system might not be available or a certain type of engine, that type of thing? It's more subtle than that. So, for instance, GM was selling many cars, and so was Porsche, actually, with just one key fob, promising to send you the other one when the chip became available. Uh, GM did uh, the same thing with their – they they have a system where they can deactivate cylinders in their engines, uh, and that system uses uh, a lot of – I think a lot of tech as well. And so they they stopped basically doing that, which meant that they had to uh, re apply for their EPA fuel economy because the cylinder deactivation added a better fuel economy. Uh, It's things like that. And then on top of that, now this doesn't affect any safety systems, fortunately, um, but it does affect certain types of infotainment systems and entertainment systems from almost every automaker, at least here in the United States, including Stellantis, uh, Ford, to a certain extent, they all are opting to put in less, how do I put it, robust systems. So Ford has uh, Sync 4 available. That is their infotainment system. That's also voice activated. But a lot of their vehicles are still using Sync 3. And that has partially to do with this uh, shortage issue as well. You know, we're now two years into this pandemic. How are dealers handling this changing landscape? That is to say, The cars aren't available. Some of the options may not be available. People are using their fingers and ordering their cars exactly how they want online, directly from the automaker, and no longer picking and choosing from what a dealer has on site. This is a big change, and it just keeps happening, it seems. There's been the seismic shift. You know, in Europe for a long time, when you wanted to buy a car, you would go and order it, and then you'd wait for two, three months until that exact car was delivered. In America, of course, we had a much different model where you'd go to the dealership and the dealership had a large supply of vehicles and you would pick out of that supply. And that that did a bunch of things for us. It, it made 
hopefully uh, are pricing much more competitive than many other places in the world. So we had some of the least expensive cars because we had the most competitive marketplaces with the dealership networks. Recently, of course, that has changed. And so now we're seeing a much more, dare I call it a European model, you know, where people have to order the car. Uh, and, and the manufacturers, quite honestly, love that because they're building exactly what people want and they don't have to build cars that people may want, which then have to be discounted. Now, from a dealer point of view, it's also challenging because, uh, quite frankly, they have a lot fewer vehicles on the lot. And so they're acting much more of a, of a middleman than, than an actual dealership because the cars are coming to the dealer they're already pre-sold, or if they're not pre-sold, the dealers I've been talking to are saying that, you know, even on the way to the dealership, people are reserving those cars. Uh, and so, you know, you, you have a much different role to play now. You're more of a kind of a delivery agent than you are, uh, you know, a, a storefront with many brands and many models that people can choose from. We've seen the best and the worst out of dealers, but that's a whole different conversation because a lot of dealers are using this moment in time to price above MSRP on the most popular models. Yeah, and we did discuss this last time on CPR uh, about uh, dealers, unfortunately, gouging um, consumers, and it's still happening. And in some cases, automakers are actually going after the dealerships and saying, don't do this. This is not the time to do this. It's very interesting. There's quite a few of them that are doing this. Ford, Subaru, they recently have gone on record stating to their dealers, please don't do this. Because in some cases, yes, we do understand that you cannot you know, make your profits because you don't have the volume. So you're upping the price. But in some cases, it's exuberant, some of the price increases, and it's really hurting consumers. So that is a huge negative. And unfortunately, this is going to be the new norm, at least I would imagine for the next year. I think Roman agrees. Yeah. And then because of, you know, this incredible inflationary spiral that we're in, that's also being reflected in vehicle costs. So, you know, prices of cars are increasing as well as trucks uh, and availability is decreasing. It just makes kind of for the perfect storm of, you know, having not enough supply, too much demand, which leads to very high prices. I know, for example, that there have been more Ford Broncos on the local Ford dealer lot here, but many of them are selling for much more over asking price. Like you said, uh, they have inserted this market adjustment for those trucks, sometimes hundreds of dollars over MSRP. And from what you're saying, it's not just the uh, the Ford dealers. It's kind of across the board. It truly is across the board. Almost every automaker has unfortunately thrown this out there. Now, here's the good news. Um, there are an awful lot of dealers that are trying to play fair. And when you find them, and they may be in other states or other cities, you'll see them advertising, we're selling this vehicle at MSRP. And it wasn't that long ago when you were able to buy a vehicle for $1,000 under MSRP, and that was part of a sale or a special event. And it's going to be very difficult to find that nowadays. But at the very least, there are still some dealerships that are doing whatever they can to try to play fair and give the consumer a good price for the vehicle. Bear in mind that you may be buying a vehicle that is two or even $3,000 over the MSRP, and that may be an average coming up soon. Unfortunately, you may have paid that, but that doesn't mean you've increased the value of the vehicle. Over time, if you want to sell it, you're going to be stuck with the actual you know, value of the vehicle versus what you paid for it. And that even with cars with good resale value, like Lexus, as an example, you're going to get hammered. 
Yeah. I want to turn now, of course, to the increase in gas prices at the pump. We're talking about cars are getting more expensive and they're getting more expensive to uh, fuel up. What are some of the trends you're seeing within the car industry in terms of bringing electrification uh, to to the automobile world? I know that for a while, it seems that big trucks were making a comeback, like the Ford Bronco, the new Land Rover Discovery, the Ram, all these things. But it seems now uh, that might be something consumers like, I don't want to spend that much on gas. Yeah, there, there seems to be that magic number, which is either like four or five dollars a gallon that changes people's behavior in terms of their shopping. Um, so recently, you know, we've been living through a time of inexpensive fuel. And so people have fallen in love with big uh, American SUVs. I'm talking about Tahoe's, Suburbans, and the like. Same thing with the Japanese versions of that. But unfortunately, those vehicles you know, tend to be 20 MPG or less. And I think even though we're at very low adoption numbers in terms of electric cars, so we're at, I think, 2% in pure electric in America and 4% when you throw in hybrids and plug-in hybrids, I think certainly gas prices are going to drive that fact that I think more people are going to be looking at ways to hopefully, you know, save at the pump. And the great thing about electric cars, and there's a lot of downsides, but the great thing about electric cars is you can charge them overnight. I know Nathan has a Leaf uh, that he yes, uses his house as a garage. How's that working out for you, Nathan? Uh, it's a great thing to have because for local transportation, I charge it. I, I just throw it on the 110. I don't even need my heavy-duty charger, which is a, a level two. And overnight, I charge it during, you know, low um, power and nothing else is on really and so it doesn't cost that much to fill it up it's got a 30 kilowatt hour battery which gives me eh, up to about 80 miles range because it's a used nissan leaf my daughter drives it back and forth to school and bangs it off trees and everything else and it still runs um <laughs> maintenance has been almost zero other than tires and that's over two years and then on top of that we use it as a commuter from time to time when gas prices are painful like they are right now. So my wife will go back and forth to her job from time to time, and it saved us a ton of money. Used electric cars are actually quite a deal if you can deal with the fact that they don't have the best range, but they're extraordinary in terms of how much you can save, especially over the long run. I want to turn to some listener emails now. We had quite a few after our last conversation, but a few more have come in just recently. One listener said his 2013 Ford Focus was recalled for a transmission issue, but because of the backlog of parts, it's taking months for him to get that part replaced. Apparently, there's even a class action lawsuit against Ford now because of others in similar situations. Are you hearing about this? And and, and what can consumers do if they get this recall letter for a pretty serious recall, but dealers just don't have the parts? This is a problem that isn't just isolated with Ford. There are other automakers out there that have issued recalls. And unfortunately, despite those recalls, they may not be able to fix the component that need or components that need to be replaced in your vehicle. And you need to check and immediately call. If you get a notice, don't wait. Immediately contact the dealer and or the automaker. Usually there'll be a website. And there's also the uh, NHTSA, which will post those recalls as well. So we, we've gotten a bunch of emails from people with similar situations. And actually, it happened to us. Uh, we had a Ford F-250 where uh, the uh, spark plug wires, I believe, was the spark plug wires were, were defective? Yes, it was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we went, took it to our dealer, and he kind of threw up his hands and said, hey, these things are backordered. So, uh, you know, it just means that maybe those parts are out there and some dealers have them. And yet, you know, the dealer that you happen to take your car to uh, doesn't. 
So I, I would suggest, uh, you know, if you've got time, do some of the legwork yourself, help the dealer out uh, and see if that part is available. We were able to track it down, but you know, it's, it's strange times we're living in. And I think the days of just taking the car in and hoping for the best uh, might be over. You might actually have to go and take matters into your own hands, especially if that car is something that, that you need for daily commuting or, you know, you need on a daily basis. It's that rough out there right now. So, you know, if people don't want to buy a new car, either electric or a gas engine, what can they do to kind of mitigate the fact they're paying four bucks at the pump? Yeah, probably the biggest thing you can do when uh, we um, we just did a whole video on this, actually, is make sure your tires are inflated. Oh, my gosh. If you're rolling around on, you know, tires with, let's say, um, supposed to have 32 PSI and you're at 20, that is a matter of one or two MPG at least. Uh, so don't ignore wow. that little TPMS light. Definitely go to the gas station and fill them up. Uh, Nathan, some other tips you got? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, one of them, I know a lot of you guys are going to roll your eyes, but but, but you hear me out. Speed limit. Go closer to the speed limit. The thing is, if you're going slower, you're consuming less fuel. And so maybe, I don't know, add an extra 10 minutes to your commute so that way you can get to work without having to hammer the accelerator and you'll find that your vehicle is more efficient. But there's another thing you can do, which is reduce the weight of your vehicle. And I'm not telling you to re- you know take a car seat out or you know throw it out or whatever. <laughs> But there's a lot of junk that people leave in their vehicle. Believe me, I have a teenage daughter who has about 150 pounds worth of useless material in her vehicle that she doesn't need. If she were to remove that, if if she was driving a gas car, she would save possibly a mile per gallon. Every time you remove weight, significant weight from a vehicle, a lighter vehicle is a more efficient vehicle. And to Roman's note about having proper pressure in your tires, it's also a safety issue. So yes, check your tires. Make sure they're properly inflated. In Colorado, we love to put stuff on our roof, like tents and bikes and tulies, all that stuff. Huge aerodynamic uh, brakes on uh, on a vehicle. So especially if you're doing a lot of highway miles, you know, take if you don't need that tule up there, if you don't need that bike rack, pull it off. It's going to give you a much better fuel efficiency. What about octane? I know that my car says 87 octane is required. Can I maybe um, cheat a little and put 85 in, which is a bit cheaper right now? Uh, yeah, so there's there's required and recommended. In the olden days, if you put lower octane gas, you would get knock, and the knock, of course, would be very bad for the engine. But today, modern computers can actually compensate for that. So if if it says 87 recommended or 91 recommended, you can go lower, uh, and the computer will compensate for that lower fuel. You might get a little bit less performance, a little bit less horsepower, but you can do it. If it says required, I would highly recommend you stick with it because uh, at that point, you might be actually doing some damage. Yeah, and for those of you who are wondering how you can tell, usually if you're opening up your fuel flap, it should say right there what uh, type of fuel is recommended and or required. Nathan Adlin and Roman Micah are automobile journalists with TFL Cars, an automobile review site based in Boulder. When we come back, perspective on becoming a new parent in the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Cathay Williams was born into slavery in Missouri. Just a teenager in the Civil War, she was freed by Union soldiers and began paid work as a servant in the Federal Army. Then the war ended, and she found a novel way to maintain her financial independence. She enlisted. 
Women were not allowed to serve at that time, so Cathay Williams posed as a man under the name William Cathay. She was made one of the Buffalo Soldiers, the all-black peacetime regiment of the Army. Musket in hand, she marched from fort to fort in the plains in Southwest. After two years, she'd had enough and allowed the military to discover she was a woman and was honorably discharged. Cathay Williams moved to Pueblo, had a short and unhappy marriage, and died in Trinidad in 1892. Today, a marker there declares, her service represents the contributions of all African-American women who helped settle the West. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Coble and Company. Becoming a new parent is challenging even in the best of times. The pandemic has reshaped that challenge. Our colleague at KRCC Morning Edition host Abigail Beckman became a new mom nearly two years ago. Her 17-month-old daughter is among the many children who've largely grown up so far in relative isolation from society, a society filled with masks and distancing. Abigail challenged her thoughts in an essay we're going to share with you now. I should remember everything from that moment, the few seconds, or was it longer, before the sound before she cried, before the child I had carried for so long took her first breath. But I don't. Maybe I shouldn't beat myself up about it. I put unrelenting pressure on myself through the entire pregnancy. A first baby's hard enough, but my husband and I had her during a pandemic. In fact, the morning after I took three frantic pregnancy tests in our guest bathroom, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. It felt like a big screw you from the universe after enduring several health problems and months of trying to conceive. My husband experienced our first sonogram from the car over a video call. He wasn't allowed in the doctor's office. We announced the pregnancy in a parking lot during a socially distanced coffee meetup with my family. No hugs, no hands on my stomach. Just awkward congratulations from at least six feet away. I started working from home, and as long as I stayed seated during our video meetings, I could have hid my pregnancy from coworkers entirely. I didn't get to rifle through shelves of maternity clothes or gently touch tiny buttons and buttery fabrics to find an outfit to bring her home from the hospital. We couldn't attend birthing classes, learning to breathe rhythmically and laughing alongside other couples, comparing symptoms and belly size. Everything changed so fast. The surreal experience of expecting one's first child made all the more surreal by our circumstances. We were alone in our house for months, alone with a growing baby that I couldn't let myself truly enjoy because every day was Groundhog's Day, combined with the added fear that I would contract a new and deadly virus or someone I loved would. And that left a lot of room for spiraling thoughts of doubt. A vice wrapped around my insides. I rarely let myself enjoy the journey my body was taking out of fear that I might jinx the whole thing because I didn't deserve this gift. Was I eating enough leafy greens? How much water did I drink? Was my bath water too hot? Did I sleep on the wrong side last night? Ugh. I took Pepto-Bismol and this random blogger I discovered while I couldn't sleep says it's bad for the baby. Did she move enough today? Why hasn't she hiccuped yet? Not to mention the questions that ran through my head about what kind of world this little baby would be born into. Did I want to subject her to climate change, war, the ever-changing political landscape, turning friends into acquaintances, and amplifying silence at family dinners? I have friends who've chosen to forego having children altogether for these exact reasons. Were they smarter than me? How would I shield her from the callous nature of teenage girls? Oh God, teenage boys— the original pandemic that will never go away. What would the world turn her into? What would it take away from her? 
the decision to become a parent is one that sets you up for a whole lot of hurt, deep hurt, a kind of pain that even when everything is going right, there's a fear that it could always turn wrong. It hurts. And when my baby was born, when she took that first breath and ventured out into the world, that fear took hold of my entire body, my mind, my nerves, my bones. If you ever want to feel like you don't know how to do a single damn thing, have a baby. At times, I felt totally unhinged. I had this urge to tackle, punch, and rip the throat out of anyone who held her for more than a few minutes. It was an unyielding desire to protect her. It goes against all logic, but I wanted her back inside my body. She was safe there. Sure, I was happy to cradle her tiny frame and count her delicate fingers, but while she was in my womb, no one was bringing germs or making proclamations about what she would be or who she looked like. She was mine. I knew her, no one else did, and I didn't want them to. But this was the moment I'd been waiting for, right? Sharing her with my loved ones, introducing this perfect symphony of organs and flesh and me and my husband to the planet. I cried as I stood in the shower while my in-laws held her in our living room. They had on masks, and they respected everything I had asked for. But what if? What if? What if? What if? What if? For months, I felt like I would vomit anytime someone came near her. It's the same feeling you get in your stomach when you have to slam on the brakes. Her first breath was a split second, a tiny gasp followed by a grunt and a short piercing wail. This precious being that had lived inside of me, that I'd sustained and loved and been so afraid to lose, had made her roaring announcement of arrival to the world. My mom caught it on video on her cell phone. She was one of two masked visitors allowed to be in the hospital. My husband was the other. And if she'd asked if I wanted her to document the baby's birth, I would have said no, adamantly. She apparently believes it's better to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission. But I'm glad she didn't ask. Now I can experience it, even if it's secondhand and from a slightly different and very unflattering angle. I think I know why I don't remember, though. That messy split second was the moment she became vulnerable to everything outside of my control. Can you really control a pregnancy? No. But it feels a lot easier than trying to control the entire world. And that's what I'm doing now. Because that breath, the one that filled her lungs, the swell of air that came flying back out in a torrent of fury, it opened her up to something beyond me. Breath is scary. It's more than scary, especially right now. It's horrifying. During a pandemic, it carries an imperceptible secret about whether someone's been wearing a mask and staying safe or if they could pass on the virus. I don't want to keep my little girl from inhaling and exhaling, from running through the park, from being around people at the fair, at the grocery store, at the mall, from experiencing the world. But what do I do when that breath, the one I waited for and hoped she would take, feels like the one thing that can take her away from me? I hold mine, and I don't exhale. Abigail, my goodness, there is so much to reflect on here. The pandemic is only one stressor adding to what can already be a stressful time for new parents. You describe uh, the birth, you describe, uh, you know, the pregnancy and how so many things resonate. But then you add the pandemic on top of that, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote this over time kind of on my iPhone in the notes section when I was up at night or feeding my baby, just all these thoughts I had swirling around in my head. And I was speaking with friends who were experiencing the same thing, and I, I know I'm better at communicating through writing, so this sort of helped me to, to calm things. 
There was also the side of me as a reporter. I wanted to document what was going on. I, I saw this as an experience that was unique in this point in history. Um, and it also helped me realize that I should get some therapy because when I read it to my husband, he was like, wow, are you OK? Um, so it was a, a, a process for me that opened up myself to the people who read it. And it also helped me kind of have this as a record for my daughter. How has it been opening up? You know, sometimes journalists, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not wanting to be the story, right? How has it been saying, this is what's truly going on inside of me right now? Well, I'm not typically a vulnerable person, and that was really hard, um, even just to share this here and with the few people in my family that I've shared it with. I feel like the after having the baby part isn't talked about as much because your hormones are going to be wild. Things are going to be so different. Um, but I really feel like this helped because I was able to put it down on paper and say, here's what's happening to me. Here's what happens to other women, families in general. And it's normal and it's okay to not feel okay. It's not, it's not like it is on Instagram. It's not sundresses and styled mm -hmm. hair and makeup. It's you're up all night. You don't bathe and you like, I remember cramming, uh, bread with butter on it into my mouth in the middle of the night because I realized I hadn't eaten all day. You know, it's it's just, to me, this was what was really happening. Yeah. And all of that in addition to a, a global pandemic. Correct. Yep. All at the same time, whether I wanted that to happen or not. <laughs> we can point out that you're one of the fortunate ones in that your job allows you to work from home. Not everyone has had that opportunity. How do you hope people will respond to what you wrote? Well, I really I recognize that privilege and that I was able to stay home. My husband and I were both able to continue working. I had access to good medical care and even the privilege to be able to have a child. I really just tried to write this from the perspective of something that I thought would be relatable for parents, regardless of barriers that they may face. I really don't know anyone who has brought home a child without feeling like they were losing their mind at some point or another. And I wanted to normalize that. Um, I do feel pretty vulnerable sharing this. But I hoped it was a way to make people laugh and maybe feel less alone in what they were going through. I connected to a lot of uh, what you wrote and what you said. Uh, you know, my own four-year-old daughter hasn't been able to experience the joy of going to the playground, running around without a care in the world. I know, you know, playground trips and playdates have been few and far between with her. I always remember when the pandemic started that there was, you know, yellow caution tape wrapped around the entire playground and how she f just didn't get that, no, today we can't go and play. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, has this been something you think about as the pandemic enters a year, uh, enters year three, essentially, you know, albeit with, a f with far fewer restrictions, that things are maybe changing, but there is a, a big part of these kids' lives that is never going to be the same. Right. It almost feels like that caution tape is still there. I mean, that image, right. I'll never forget the caution tape around our playground as well. It's um, it's something I think about constantly. Uh, my husband and I are always weighing the risks. It's evaluating whether to stay or leave a situation. My goal through all this has been to stay consistent. I felt like that way no one could question what we're doing because, you know, this is what we've been doing the whole time. I, I wonder if that's something that I'll do forever. I feel like I will. It's just there. Um, and I do think this has had an effect on my baby Two funny ways. I try to stick to the funny because I don't want to think about the negative impacts. Um, taking her temperature 
she loves getting her temperature taken. She grabs the thermometer and puts it on her head herself. She sticks it in the dog's ear. I mean, that's a pandemic kid thing. (laughs) And then when we take her to the grocery store, you'd think she's at Disneyland. She's waving at everybody and looking around. And because that's somewhere she, you know, hadn't really gotten to go and still doesn't get to go that often. So the restrictions, yes, are lessening up. But my own anxieties, um, I think they'll be around for quite a while. And I think you speak for a lot of parents, including myself, that that sticking your toe just a little bit into the post-pandemic water and being like, oh, I don't know if my daughter can go out to uh, to a play date yet. But maybe, maybe, right? Right. Well, because, you know, once you get there, they love it and, you know, it ends up being okay. But still, that initial movement into the unknown is just really hard. Yeah. Abigail, thanks so much for sharing with us today. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Abigail Beckman is the Morning Edition host on KRCC and mom to a 17-month little girl born during the pandemic. We'll post Abigail's essay about being a new parent in the Colorado Matters podcast. Colorado Matters for Day. Thanks for joining us, and a big thanks to the team that makes it all happen. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Nathan Heffel. We love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters or send us an email, coloradomatters at cpr.org. Catch Colorado Matters anytime with our podcast at Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts and also online at cpr.org. And you can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the Colorado Matters podcast. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 